All right, let's go. Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? In today's episode, which we're entitling The One Where We Get Personal, we're going to talk a little bit about our own deconversion stories, but from a little bit different angle. Susie and I come from really different faith tradition backgrounds, and so we kind of want to compare and contrast our mindsets through the different periods of our lives, and then talk about how even though we came from really different backgrounds, how we arrived at the same conclusion. I think it's going to be a pretty cool conversation talking about some of the early indicators of deconstruction, maybe little hints that something just wasn't quite right, and then seeing how those cracks developed into a full-fledged deconstruction. So we hope it'll be a fun conversation. We're going to kind of try to interview each other, and hopefully it will be relevant and enlightening to you guys, the listeners. So. So my favorite part of hearing people's deconstruction stories or deconversion stories is those early indicators or the cracks or kind of what was the impetus that caused them to start the journey. I love that it's different for every single person. So I thought we could start there. What were the earliest indicators or cracks, if you had any, in your theology? When I started thinking about this, I don't think I had any cracks that I saw early on in my childhood. I think developmentally for me and the level of indoctrination, which we talked about in last episode, the idea of critical thinking just wasn't there for me. I think we definitely differ on that as you are much more precocious in your <laughs> your questioning. But later on, and some of this was hindsight, looking back, seeing some of the cracks. And as I progressed through my faith, a few things really gnawed at me. And one of them was like, why the church was so inward focused? Why were we so focused on salvation and not meeting people's physical needs, mental needs, emotional needs, and only their spiritual ones? I don't know. It was like a latent thing that was like always like in the background in my faith journey, but I never really identified it as something that could lead to walking away. It was just always a feeling, a frustration I had in a lot of different churches and faith communities I was in. Did you feel like the churches weren't measuring up to what Jesus had taught? Yeah, I think that definitely was it. Like you have this picture of what you think the message of Jesus was, and then you compare it to what your church is doing during the 90s, you may remember, WWJD was a big thing. And at that time, I never really considered that question from that standpoint of like social justice and all that kind of stuff. And then there are some other things that were really kind of stuck in my craw, like why was being a conservative Republican what was expected as a Christian? Mm, yeah. Another thing was was about like the structure of the church, like why does a small group of people in a church really run the show? In my situation, a board basically ran my dad out of a job as a pastor, and I was like, "Wait, that seems weird because, you know, supposedly the pastor was the head. They were like right in line to God, you know, but how could a group of old white men, you know, basically <laughs> fire my dad and that was probably the earliest indicator as a child when my dad got booted out of a church. I think I was like 10 or 11 or 12, somewhere around there. And that was a really painful part of my childhood. And I didn't recognize it as a crack in the system. I recognized it as these people, what's wrong with them? And now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, there's systemic problems there that were going on. It wasn't just the people. So, 
So that wasn't really God-centric. That wasn't criticisms of God in particular. It was more criticisms of the church structure and the people who formed the church. That's interesting. Yeah. This was totally different from what my cracks were. And I realized like, as I was thinking about this, that it wasn't till later in the deconstruction process that I really started to look at the theology, the issues with the Bible. Ultimately, the existence of God is something to be questioned. What about you? Because yours is so different than mine. It's like, I find it fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating because we had the exact opposite experience. I did not think anything about the church structure until after I really came to the conclusion that God didn't exist. For me, the early cracks were all about, does God exist? Is God logical? Does it make sense? Does the Bible make sense? Does the theology hold up with what we see in reality? One of the big things that was always on my mind when I was a kid was, why is God so hidden? And he doesn't talk to us, at least not directly, not with words like you and I are talking to each other right now. Right. It is more like he talks to us with feelings and with these really obscure signs that if you're not really paying attention, you might miss. Mm -hmm. When I was about 10 years old, my best friend, um, her dad had a boat and we would always go for weekend trips, go and go sailing. And honestly, these were some of the best memories of my entire life going on the boat with her and her dad and her sister. I got invited to go on the boat on Easter weekend one year and my parents would not let me go because it was Easter and I had to go to church and no amount of begging or pleading would get them to change their mind to let me go until I said, but what if I go to church in Annapolis? which is where the boat was. Then can I go? And the room got really quiet. (laughs) My mom and my dad, they looked at each other and they said, "Um, we're going to go talk. (laughs) So they went into another room and they talked for a little bit and they came back and my dad looked super serious. And he said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. We'll let you go to Annapolis, but you have to go to church. Okay, I'm going to redact their names. My best friend's dad. Right. That's how we're going to get him back to church. Right. (laughs) So my best friend's family was Catholic, but they hadn't been to church in forever. I mean, they were lapsed. And they were not religious. And I guess this always bothered my parents. And so they thought that this was God telling them, this is how we're going to get him back, right? Yes, yes. So I didn't care about that. I was just excited I got to go on the trip. Right. So come Sunday morning, I get dressed in my dress and you know my best friend and her sister were all dressed and I'm I'm waiting for her dad to come with us and he's like oh I'm not going. And I was like wait wait what do you mean? No this is the whole point. <laughs> I wait. didn't say that to him. But I was like wait what do you mean you're not going? Yeah you're messing up the master plan. Right. He's like go have fun. It was the three of us girls and we were tiny. I mean we were like 70 pounds. Right. Walking around Annapolis by ourselves finding a church. <laughs> Yeah, I remember thinking my parents had been mistaken. Right. They thought God was talking to them and telling them something and that they had sensed God's plan. Right. But they were wrong. Right. If it was God's plan, well, something didn't work out there. Like his plan was not strong enough to overcome my friend's dad's unwillingness to go to church. Right. He didn't change my friend's dad's heart. Mm-hmm. It must not have been his plan. So my parents heard wrong. And I never forgot that. Yeah. Like after that, it was always when, when this person says God's calling me to do this, how do I know that God's actually calling them? Or is it just their own inner thoughts and desires that they are attributing to God? How do you differentiate the two? Right. And even at that age, could you parse out the idea that God was supposedly omniscient and knew all this stuff, but then somehow man overruled God? Like, did that enter into your thought process? Oh, yeah, definitely. To me, it's so fascinating that you could think that like clearly at 10 years old, that you were like, Oh, yeah, if this person is speaking with God and then my friend's dad basically said no to God, your thought was – see, my thought would have been, 
oh, that dad is a sinner. Not anything that, oh, my parents were wrong about God. That's so, that's such a different view. That's so oh, interesting. I wonder why. Yeah. I wonder why I came to that. You know, I went down one path and you went down another. It, well, you know what? I have a theory and we'll probably get to that later as we get through to our childhood okay. stories. Yeah. I did have one other one other story I wanted to mention. So like, you know, when these things happen to you and you never forget them because they make such an impression on you. Well, this is another time when I questioned and I was shut down. And I remember this as being a turning point of like, oh, I can't ask questions. <laughs> right. So I was having this logical conundrum bouncing around in my head. And I think I was probably around the same age, like 10, 11, 12. And this is the question that was going through my head. Did God make me human, like as opposed to a cat or something, because he loves me? Or does he love me because my consciousness happens to be in a human body instead of a cat's body? Yeah, you were thinking like, oh, I could have been born a cat and would God love me the same or... Yeah, and then I'm not his special creation. Right, right. If I was a cat, but am I not a cat because I'm his special creation? <laughs> right. Like, which, kind, which came first, right? right? It's like the chicken or the egg type thing. Yeah, obviously in my head, I'm thinking this, but I'm 10. I can't say the words and so that they'll make sense. I can barely say them now. Yeah. I can't say them when I'm 10. It's a pretty high level question, like for a, ten, for a 10 year old. Well, when I asked my mom about it, it came out as something like, hey, mom, God loves me because I'm human, but it's kind of just by chance I'm human, right? And she was like <laughs> horrified. She was like, no, 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 no. She just kept saying no over and over. And she right. basically, she was saying, do not ever say anything like that again. That was right. horribly blasphemous. And so I didn't. And I never forgot that look on her face. Was she able to give you any kind of explanation or she just was so freaked out? Yeah, that. No, she was just so freaked out. She shut it down right away. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a pretty solid question, though. Even adults don't really think about. And I can say, like, I've never had that thought in my life about <laughs> being special. Like, the difference is your level of indoctrination was very different than mine. Correct. You know, and your and your family dynamic was probably different than mine. You know, yes, they didn't really want questions, but they also weren't force feeding things necessarily down your throat. Yeah. Any other early cracks or later cracks? <laughs> So I recently wrote down a list of 18 cracks or objections that I had to Christianity when I was either a kid or a teenager. And these were all ones that I thought up of on my own. I never looked for any, you know, I never looked at any atheist literature or talked to anybody who didn't believe in God and never had any debates with anybody. These are just things I thought of. I wouldn't say any of them are earth shattering. Right. None of them are unique. But they did come out of my child brain. And so I think that's worth something. And there were 18 yeah. objections that I could remember. And I think we should go through that in its own episode. I think that would be fun. That'd be really interesting, too. And in the Bible, you see a lot of references to like children having wisdom. And even Jesus said several times, you know, out of the mouth of babes comes certain wisdom. But if you are the, quote, baby asking these deep, hard questions, it's not wisdom then that it's your sin nature. <laughs> you know, it's things you're not right. allowed to ask. Um, one of the major cracks that I dwelled on a lot as especially an older child is why God would create half of humans to be subservient to the other half. And, you know, I mean, women. Right. I just didn't understand. I, I didn't feel second class in any way to, mm -hmm. for instance, my brother or my husband. I 
don't feel that. I don't see how I am. And I don't see how any God could create us that way. And that could be his intention. Right. I've always felt this way. And it's it's always been one of the main things that made me go, could this really be true? Is this really how God really wanted it all to be? Yeah, because you see that even from the beginning of the Bible story, you hear about the patriarchal setup from the very beginning because, you know, women came out of man and that's the justification for man being the head of the home and the head of the church. And I didn't notice that till later. Like, oh man, look at all this patriarchy here that is so negative to women. I mean, it's just downright mean. Subservient is like a nice word for it. And that's not even nice. It was really hard for me to say at my wedding that I would obey my husband. I I had basically had to choke those words out. Right. Our marriage is not like that at all. If anything, he obeys me. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone knows in the real world, the husbands obey the wives. Yeah, totally. Only in Christianity do they think they can turn things on their head and go against the actual natural order. Come on. A lot of the differences in our journeys start in our childhood. So so let's start with you, Phil, and tell us how your early childhood, let's say ages zero to nine, how was that for you? I was essentially born into Christianity. From the time I was in utero, my parents became Christians uh, about four months before I was born. So if you do the math on that, I was conceived in sin. Do you mean that they weren't married when you were conceived or that, or were you saying you were conceived in sin because they weren't Christian? Well, it's probably a little of both. They were not Christians when I was conceived. You know, the timeline didn't line up very well for they got married and when I was born. Ah, okay. But yeah, I was in church from the beginning. I grew up independent, fundamentalist, Baptist. Is that what the Duggars are? Yes. Okay. They're like the very extreme version because IFB, while it's like a denomination, it doesn't have like a hierarchy and a structure. So there's a lot of things that would call themselves IFB that might not be as extreme as the Duggars. I grew up definitely very close to that. Oh, wow. That, that mentality, the Bill Gothard mentality. and I don't know who Bill Gothard is, but did you grow up kind of close to what the Duggars are like? It's not quite as extreme. I don't, I don't think I was as isolated. Like I wasn't homeschooled. But I did have another friend as a child that was a pastor's kid, and they were more the Duggar style. They had eight or nine kids. You know, it was very strict. The girls couldn't wear pants. When they went in the pool together, the girls had to wear like pants and a t-shirt over their bathing suits. Oh, wow. I wasn't quite that extreme. But yeah, I I made the the salvation decision. And I, I say that in quotes. Uh, that it was a decision because at four years old, like we discussed last episode, you can't really make that kind of decision. And I made the decision to get saved after hearing Jerry Falwell on TV or seeing him on TV and hearing the altar call. You growing up Lutheran, you probably don't have the altar call experience. No. The altar call is endemic to independent Baptist churches where at the end of every service, there's a decision time where the pastor is going to invite you to make some kind of decision, whether it's for salvation, whether it's for rededication, whether it's for ministry. Every time you're in church, you're getting called to make some kind of decision. I made this decision because I was afraid of hell. Obviously, the altar call is very guilt-inducing. And even at four years old, I was like, well, that sounds terrifying. Hell doesn't sound good. What do I got to do to get out of that? But my whole world was Christianity, like private Christian school because public school was evil. I was in church three times a week. 
So were you able to watch any secular TV? I don't mean like The Simpsons or something like crude like that, but I mean, would you have been able to watch Ghost Rider? Yeah, no, we watched like cartoons and stuff, but I did, you know, if, if I wanted to watch Smurfs, I would have to endure some kind of sermon about how Gargamel and Azrael were really pictures of Satan and that Smurfs were de- demonic. Oh, wow. Yeah, the spiritual warfare thing was a big part of my childhood. Everything was a war and a battle, you know? Yeah, I did not have that. My parents would never have told me something was demonic. And when you think about it, it's not really the thing you tell a small child about demons or hell. No. To be fair to my parents, I don't feel like they were trying to traumatize me. I think they were doing what they thought they were supposed to do. Like, yeah. I was definitely raised with the James Dobson dare to discipline model of parenting, which was everything bad that a kid does is because of sin and corporal punishment and spanking and all that kind of stuff is the only only way to get rid of that stuff. So I had a copious amount of spankings as a child. You know, my parents used to quote the verse about how in the Old Testament they used to stone rebellious kids. And for my earliest days, I was, you know, labeled as difficult or strong-willed. They didn't shun psychology per se, but they were like, there's got to be something wrong with this kid. So they had me tested for learning disorders. Oh, I wish I would have gotten out. My mom actually sent me the evaluation and she's like, I think you might find this really interesting. Like as a parent now, the only thing I found interesting about it was that the recommendation from the psychologist was this kid needs like love and care and affection. Oh, wow. Did you miss this part of the evaluation? There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. I really wish I would have took it out, but I don't want to rustle through my cabinet to find it because it's really kind of fascinating. You know, I had impulse control issues and all that kind of stuff, but I was very advanced academically, so they could never keep me back. Yeah. All he needs is to be less afraid of the rapture. Right. <laughs> and I went to you know private Christian school where you got spanked in the principal's office. Oh, wow. I was telling my kids about this today and they were like, what? What are you talking about? It's such a foreign concept to them. Like, Oh, I know. Which I'm glad of. So when you were diagnosed as having a learning disorder, or a hyperactivity or whatever it was that you were diagnosed with. Did you feel like, why did God give me this? Or why did God make me this way? Or did your parents ever make it seem like you would have a less chance of being an obedient child of God to get into heaven because of your learning disabilities? So my learning disorder that they diagnosed me with was a visual spatial disorder, which of course has nothing to do with behavior per se. So that was the only thing they could speak plop on me as a label, you know, ADHD wasn't a thing. And no, it never came to my mind that because of having a disorder, quote unquote, that affected my ability to be obedient or my relationship or understanding of God. Okay. I never would have thought, oh, well, why did God make me this way? Again, because of the indoctrination. So the reason I'm asking is because I had that thought, why did God make me this way? But about something completely different. It was about why can't my brain just put aside all this logic (laughs) And accept this. The Bible says accept it like a little child. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do that. And I just kind of had to accept that it was because of the way my brain was structured, like the way my neurons go. I don't know. Why would God give me that brain? Why would God give me these neurons? Knowing it would be so hard for me to accept him. Yeah, accept him. Yeah. On virtually no evidence. Right. Why would he do that to me? <laughs> and that's something that always plagued me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I never had that thought. I kind of wish I had. 
My dad felt the call to become a pastor at some point in my childhood. I think it was around like age six. And then we moved from New Jersey to Lynchburg, Virginia, so he could go to Liberty. Wait, so he went to Liberty? Yes. And you also went to Liberty? Yes, later on. A weird circle of life, how that worked out. Yeah. So yeah, he decided or felt the call of God that he wanted to become a pastor. And he was, you know, obviously an adult married with kids going off to college. He had never gone to college post high school mostly because he had gotten my mom pregnant and <laughs> had to get thrust into adulthood. Um, <laughs> so didn't have time for college when you got little rebellious old Phil running around the house. So, um, so yeah, so we ventured off to Lynchburg to do the college thing. And I feel like a lot of memories and stuff from that time that were not bad memories. Like I remember seeing a lot of things that at the time I viewed as like miraculous provisions from God because we were like super poor and like sometimes we'd come home from church or something like that and there would be like bags of groceries on my porch you know and my parents would be like oh this is amazing like this, look what God did blah 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 of course I never questioned it because I just wanted to eat you know but looking back at that now I would say well look at what those people did yeah the only other staple of my childhood that I really remember was being really afraid of the rapture which you mentioned earlier like rapture panic was a staple of my childhood if I I was ever alone in the house, I was freaking out. Like I'm running around the house looking for piles of clothes because I thought they got raptured. I know. This is so foreign to me. The whole rapture fear. Oh, I had so many nightmares and I was always afraid that I hadn't done my salvation right, you know, because I was young and I was like, well, maybe I need to do it again. So like I talked about earlier, those guilt-induced altar calls, I was very responsive to those. But how about you? Yours, your childhood was a lot different than mine. Oh, so, so different. I think the only thing that we had in common is that our parents both believed in God and we both went to church and... <laughs> That's pretty much where it ended. Yeah. We were a normal family for all intents and purposes. We were nothing extreme. We were Missouri Synod Lutheran. Well, my parents still are Missouri Synod Lutheran. We went to church every week. My mom taught Sunday school and VBS. Uh, we counted money after church, which actually I have really good memories of doing with <laughs> my dad. I, I don't know why. I just love counting the money. I guess it was because like math, right? It's, it's math right. and logic. <laughs> yeah. But overall, growing up at that church was a really positive experience. I really enjoyed the people there. They were all really nice. I don't ever remember any trauma. You know, there was nothing like I hear all these horrible stories and I never went through that, thankfully. So I never had a problem with the church itself. The only problem was that I didn't really accept what the church was teaching. So anyway, my parents, they believe it all, you know, very faithfully, but they're not crazy about it. Like I said, my parents would have never told me something was demonic or that something was happening because God was angry. Mm. Even though they believed in God, they didn't make leaps like that. Right. And so I think that was probably helped me stay grounded in reality. Yeah. But I was basically allowed to watch whatever I wanted within reason. Not I couldn't watch The Simpsons. It was just too crude. I could read Harry Potter. I could actually Harry Potter came later, but I could have read Harry Potter if, if I, it was a if thing. If it had been around. Yeah. Uh, I could learn about science. I, they never forced me to read the Bible. I had to for confirmation class and, you know, for Bible studies and things. And they got me a teen study Bible, which I actually did like to read. I don't think I don't remember reading like the horrible parts of the Bible at that point. Right. Yeah, we did devotionals before dinner. We prayed together before bed when I was um, younger, like when they would tuck me in. But when I got older and they didn't tuck me in anymore, I went to bed by myself. I didn't pray to myself. Right. I don't know if they knew that or not, but I just didn't do it because I guess I didn't feel like anybody was there. 
they're listening? Or, I, right. I'm not really sure. Missouri Synod Lutheran, which I'm not super familiar with, but when we talked about doctrinal flaws in one of our earlier episodes, they're very similar doctrinally to Baptists. So why do you think your parents, where they were exposed to a very similar doctrine that I, my parents would have been exposed to, how do you think they maintained a balanced childhood thing for you where they didn't pound this on you and let you kind of develop like a normal kid? Like, what do you think was behind that? That's a really good question. I think about that a lot. But honestly, nobody at my church was fundamentalist. I mean, no, they were. They believed in the fundamentalist theology and that the Bible was literal and Genesis happened literally. Mm-hmm. And But nobody was crazy. Hell was real, right? Hell was real when I was little. But I just had a conversation with my dad and he said the pastor who is still at that church now, who came when I was like 12, he recently has said he doesn't believe it's eternal torture. It's separation from God. So hell is real for them, but it might not be the classical like Dante's Inferno type hell. Yeah, the lake of fire wasn't really the thing. Right. So I'm kind of unclear about that. Hmm. But nobody at my church seemed like what you're describing. So it wasn't in the culture. And we are not from, like, I'm from the D.C. area. It's not an area where the whole speaking in tongues thing was very common. It's just not in the culture there. And so I think that that might have helped give me more of a normal childhood. Interesting. I had a lot of friends outside of church because I went to public school. I was the most religious person that I knew. Okay. None of my friends were either they were religious and it was very, very very casual or they weren't religious at all. That's how secular my town was. Yeah. And so I think that also helped. I didn't have very many Christian influences outside of church. You had like a connection to your community culture because you weren't like isolated from it. Church and your family belief system was something that you did, but it wasn't something that was like pervasive through your whole life like mine. Right. It didn't consume my life. Yeah. I couldn't tell you the first thing about like my community culture as a kid because I I wouldn't know anything about the actual neighborhood or the town because only community I had was church, you know? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, my towns were probably super secular. I grew up in New Jersey, so it's not like it's the South. Yeah. It's pretty secular in New Jersey, but I would have never been exposed to the secularism because I was just kept from it. Okay, so that's the difference in that you were kept in that bubble. Yeah. You never saw that secular society, whereas I wasn't kept in a bubble, so I got to go in and out. I kind of meandered in and out of that bubble. Yeah. At will. (laughs) Yeah. Yours was a semi permeable membrane mine was like oh i love that yeah nice mine was not permeable at all (laughs) phil i love that yeah science words yes So yeah, I wonder if I had been more, like if I had been raised in your bubble, Yeah, how would that have turned out for me? I'm pretty sure I would have ended up in the same place where I am now, Yeah, but I wonder it either might have taken longer or it might have happened sooner. I might have rebelled against it. I feel like you would have been more miserable. Oh, definitely. Because your questioning and all that stuff would have not been stood for. So either, either your personality would have been crushed and you would have given up questioning, which I don't see happening, or you would have been twice as rebellious as me or more. Yeah. You would have been in a a lot of evals. You know? <laughs> well, I always told my parents that they were the right amount of strict. I'm not talking just in a religious sense, but in terms of like giving us freedom, me and my siblings, that if they had had an any tighter grasp on us, I think we would have rebelled. At least I would have. I'm speaking yeah. for myself, not my siblings. And if they 
had had a looser grasp on us, I think I would have taken advantage of that and gone and run wild anyway. So (laughs) they gave us freedom, but they made it very clear that they trusted us. But if we messed up, that would all change. So like the trust was very important. Yeah, I think that was probably kind of that middle ground. It's like that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. They also hit that for the religion. This is how it is. We're not going to be crazy about it, but we're also not going to be so relaxed that it's not a priority. Like it's that sweet spot. Well, I think you mentioned earlier that your parents are both well-educated and neither of my parents went to college until my dad went to become a pastor college, which my mom never went to college. You know, so I wonder how that factors in to like your view of parenting and- Oh, interesting. That's a good question. My parents came from like what they call a heinous, unsaved lifestyle with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. When they came to Christianity, it was like this complete 180 in their lifestyle. And I wonder if that's why it was such a lockdown because they knew how bad it was on the other side. Mm, Yeah, yeah. If our families would have been swapped, how our journeys would have been different. Oh, I wish we knew. We'll never know. We'd have to do a double-blind study to find out, and that's impossible. Yeah, yeah. So how about your, like, preteen years? Oh, okay. Did your things progress to, like, the next level because as you developed mentally, there's going to be some significant changes in how you view things. Yeah. Yes and no. I had, by this time I had learned not to question because of various things that happened with my mom and also in confirmation class, I got shut down, but that didn't stop the internal questioning. So yeah, the internal questioning grew. The external questioning did not. Okay. Confirmation class, which is age 12 or 13, it's like a two-year class, and we have to memorize the Luther's small catechism. Do you Have you heard of that? I've heard of it, but okay. I'm not super familiar with it. For listeners, if you don't know, Martin Luther is the guy who nailed the 95 theses to the church door and started the Protestant Reformation. And he's basically idolized in my church. Not not, not literally, because they don't believe in idols. You know, they want to follow the commandments. Right. But they love this dude. And we yeah. had to um, memorize the small catechism, which is a book that was written by Martin Luther in 1529 for the training of children. So it's hmm. for the purpose of indoctrination. Okay. And we had to memorize these passages. And at the end of every passage, we had to state, this is most certainly true. And I hated that phrase. I hated <laughs> it because I didn't know if it was true. Martin Luther didn't know if it was true. That was just a very anxious time for me. And I've talked about that before on previous episodes, so I won't really go into it too much. Yeah. There was one class where my pastor was talking about how the bread and wine turn into Jesus's body and blood. I didn't understand this at all. And I kept asking questions and I asked, it still looks like wine. How is it blood? He said, well, it's still wine, but it's also blood. It's both at the same time. The blood is in with and under the wine. And I was like, I don't get it. And I just right. kept, I, I just didn't understand how it could be both at the same time. And if it still looks like wine, how can you say it's anything other than wine? Right. And he basically said, if you don't believe this, you can't get confirmed. Right. So they believe that it literally turns into the body and blood like the Catholics do with transubstantiation? No, they reject transubstantiation completely. They say what they believe is different than Catholics. You know, because they have to be different than Catholics. Right. Because Catholics are the worst of yeah. the mainstream religions, for sure. So transubstantiation is when it turns into the other thing, right? Right. Completely. Right. It's a transformation. But for Lutherans, it's both at the same time. Oh. Yeah. So it's kind of like a Holy Trinity type situation where like it's three in one. It's two in one. Two in one. Okay. 
Hmm, that's right. Doesn't make any sense, does it? No. Pretty hard for something to be two things at the same time. Especially like, when it still looks like just the one thing. Right. And tastes like the one thing. Yeah. And smells like it. But no, he said his magic words over it. And right. supposedly it changed into two things instead of one. When my pastor said that, I couldn't get confirmed if I didn't believe it. Everything started to spiral. Like, I remember this so well. The room almost felt like it was spitting. <laughs> and nobody had in my family. I didn't even know anybody in my church or anybody who had ever said, no, I, I'm not getting confirmed because I don't believe this. Right. That just seemed so crazy to me. And just for asking some questions, that to me says, questioning's discouraged. Don't do that. Right. When I started thinking about what would happen if I didn't get confirmed and how my parents would react, one time I saw my mom chewed out my brother because <laughs> during church, he wasn't reciting the creed. He was just standing there. And my mom chewed him out after saying, why would you not say the creed? The only reason why you would not say it is because you don't believe it. The way she said it was like the worst thing he possibly could do is to say he didn't believe it. Right. And so did I really want to go down that road? No. <laughs> and I'm not trying to throw my mom under the bus. She's She really is a great mom. She's you know very loving. She's so yeah. fun to be around. I love talking to her. But she has these very passionate beliefs and she really, really, really wants to impose those beliefs on those close to her. Right, right. Yeah. And so, so you basically went through with the confirmation, not because of your belief, but just because you're like, I can't handle disappointing the parents and what kind of upheaval that would cause within the family. Yes. Upheaval is a good word. Yeah. Especially since my uncle is also a Missouri Senate Lutheran pastor. Okay. And he has four perfect Christian girls. Mm -mm. So it's just a lot to live up to and it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. So we've talked about your childhood, but did things change as you started to move into your preteen and teen years? Yeah, I would say that my preteen and teen years was just like a further extension. You know, as I was getting older, it was like, okay, well now you have the mental capacity to understand this stuff supposedly. So you better do something with it, you know? So I was very active in the church like singing in the church, doing youth groups, going to camp, you know. And like I mentioned earlier, because I had such fear about things, I was constantly rededicating my life to Jesus and praying the sinner's prayer. I mean, any altar call I sat through tugged at me every time. There's a lot of guilt-based action. So why do you think you had guilt? So I had guilt because I knew that I didn't really believe it. But what was the source of your guilt? Because in your heart, you did believe it. Yeah, I think mine was more from the sense of like, what if you didn't do it right? Right. What does that mean? There was always this like talk about holiness and that definitely popped up when we took communion with part of the communion ritual in the Baptist tradition. When you read from 1 Corinthians, there's a part in that scripture where it says, examine yourselves to make sure that you don't partake of this communion unworthily. And because of this unworthiness, many have fallen asleep, which meant they died. And so like there was an actual point in the service that I, I remember where it'd be like, okay, is there anyone in this room that you need to ask forgiveness for before you take this communion? I was always like looking around, like, is there somebody that I sinned against in this room? And I know like I sinned against my parents, you know, do I need to go and get forgiveness? And what the hell am I supposed to do if somebody that I sinned against is not in the room. Oh my gosh. Am I not supposed to take the communion? Because then if you're the kid that lets the plate go by and doesn't take the bread, well, then what the hell's wrong with you? Like, why didn't you take communion? Yeah. So you were screwed either way. Like either if you took the communion unworthily, you might die. If you skipped the communion, then it's like, oh, well, you must be in sin. Did you think that meant literally die? Like you would shrivel up and die right then as soon as you ate it? Oh, 100%. I don't know if I thought it would be immediate, but yes, I, I think I probably did. 
did because fundamentals theology is so literal. Everything is literal. So it was like, when they said people died, they died. <laughs> like it was poison? Did you ever think it was weird that you never saw anybody die after taking communion? No, of course not. I would have never thought that far. <laughs> This is so weird. No, I just wouldn't have. And, you know, they were always talking about another story in the Bible, Ananias and Sapphira, where they lied to the Holy Spirit and then they died on the spot. Yeah. And the men came in and took him out and, you know, and the Bible says, oh, and the men who carried your husband out are here to take you. And, you know, and Sapphira, <laughs> and then Sapphira she falls, falls over. dead. And you're like, holy shit. This is the kind of stuff I was subjected to. And so I was like the sold out Christian, but also at the same time afraid that I wasn't doing it right that's horrible that's a horrible burden for a child i guess you are a preteen now but yeah still for you to carry that around on your shoulders that you could keel over and die because you're eating <laughs> right. bread wrong or yeah unworthily wow well and then tack on top of that you know my dad was a pastor you know later in my childhood so i was seeing a lot of the behind the curtain stuff of like all the work that went into running a church and then the churches that my dad pastored were always like small and they never grew and they never did anything and i never thought it was because there was anything wrong with what we were doing I just was like, oh, the world is lost and broken and it's too bad that these people are so blind and lost that they don't see what we're doing. You know, it never occurred to me that like no one wants to hear this stuff because it's it's friggin' crazy. Like it doesn't make a lot of logical sense, you know, but again, in the bubble. And I think this is another difference between your story and my story is that in my church, the really the most I ever saw behind the curtain was how the money got counted. Right. I think I mentioned earlier about my dad getting fired from this church. So this was like probably the first time that I really got cynical and hurt because of something Christian. And I was mad. I remember we lived in the parsonage, which is a church owned house, which was right next door to the church. And I remember when we moved out of that house... I wrote on the mirror of the bedroom, touch not the Lord's anointed, which is from the book of Isaiah somewhere, you know, and that's how mad I was at these people at the church because they had, you know, run my dad out. I think that's pretty advanced for a 12 year old to be able to pull that verse out of their, their head and use it like that. By the time I was 12, I had read through the Bible more times than most elders. Like I knew the Bible better than a lot of people. So that's like, another difference between the two of us. But again, it was like that cynicism was never about the faith or the system. It was about the people. I never questioned God. I never thought it was because he wasn't there, or he wasn't protecting us, or he didn't care. But looking back, do you think that that cynicism about the church and the people, was that step one? I think so now, looking back in hindsight, I see all these things that I question about the church and its structure, and then that eventually led to looking at the actual system of belief and the existence of God. After high school, what was your like college years like? Yeah. So I went to the University of Maryland and studied science, but I did try to get serious about religion in college. I really gave it all I had. I think part of the motivation of doing that was that I was nervous to go to such a big school and I didn't want to get caught up in the wrong crowd. I, I wanted to do well. I wanted to study and get A's and I, right. you know, I'm an overachiever <laughs> academically. So I didn't want to fall into the wrong kind of crowd and I knew that the Christians would be safe. Right. They they would keep me out of trouble. So so I did I joined that, you know, the large Christian group was InterVarsity. Yeah. I wanted to be a believer. I thought that would solve all my problems. I would I thought that would make the guilt go away, the shame. I thought it would help me fit into my family better, honestly. 
So joining InterVarsity was the first time I ever heard worship music mm. instead of organ music, like hymns from the 1600s. Right. <laughs> so that was a really new experience. And when people say that churches use that kind of music to manipulate people emotionally, oh, wow, is that true? Yeah. The first and only time I ever cried during church service was during those songs. It was really emotionally charged. But that's the only time that ever happened. And looking back, I know it was the music. Right. But anyway... So I joined Bible studies. I read the apologetics books because I really did want to convince myself that God could be compatible with science. Mm. I had deep conversations with people and it was kind of like a fake it until you make it type situation. The problem was that I never really made it. Did you find the apologetics stuff was instrumental in not believing? Like it actually reinforced your unbelief? Or did you find any of it convincing? It did not help me get any closer to belief, but it may have helped me stay on that plateau mm. and not make me slide down towards atheism. Right. I was gonna say I went through an apologetics phase too, like probably more as an adult, because I always thought that I was actually critically thinking about my faith. I was always into the deep exegetical looks at the Bible, the original language, yada, yada, all that stuff. Of course, I took all that stuff as true. So then the apologetics I used as like, oh, well, now I can use this secular method, quote unquote, to convince people that Christianity was real. But that doesn't work. No, and it doesn't. They don't convince anybody who doesn't already have that belief. Right. It's just for confirmation bias. Right. I see it so clearly now, but I didn't realize it back then. So your college career was like a big attempt at trying to make your faith real, but deep inside, it still was just an act somewhat. Oh, yeah. You know, college is a time when your sense of curiosity is heightened. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody is looking for truth. Right. Everybody is open, willing to talk about things. It's the one place where you can ask questions, really. And so I asked a ton of questions. This isn't necessarily about deconstruction, but like your personality style, was it more of like a peacemaker style where you wanted to like agree with both sides? Or was it more of like, if something didn't agree with you, you were confrontational? When I was younger, it was definitely the more confrontational style. Like if I didn't agree with something or I didn't understand something, I would keep pressing that person until it made sense. And my parents would always, I don't want to say make fun of me about it, but they used to say I should be a lawyer and they didn't mean it in a nice way. Well, my parents told me that too. Oh, interesting. We had that in common because yeah, I love to argue. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. after being told that over and over that, stop, you're such a lawyer, <laughs> yeah. you learn to stop doing yeah, that. Yeah. And so I kind of smother that. I would say now I'm more of a peacemaker. I, I like to have calm, civil discussions, but I don't like to argue. Right. Not at all. Yeah. Now that we're talking about that, I'm realizing that that argumentative personality in my personality might have been that subconscious like, hey, none of this shit makes sense. Interesting. So how was your experience in college? My college was like very similar to the rest of it. It kept intensifying. For my first year of college, I went to this like ultra conservative Bible Institute where the only curriculum was the Bible for the whole year. We went through the the entire Bible like three times. We did book by book studies. I did like service projects, evangelism, worked in a local church, worked in the winter camp, the summer camp. You know, I was leading kids to salvation. Now I was leading these altar calls that I had been a victim of as a kid. Uh. 
And the whole design of this Bible Institute was basically just to churn out ministry people, like youth pastors, pastors, missionaries. And the only reason I actually went there was because if you went to this school, you could get a free ride to Liberty. So it was like a full scholarship. So this is right after high school. You did this one year thing. Yes. And then after that, you did four years at Liberty. I only had to do three years because of all the credits that transferred, you know, Christian school to Christian school. So. Okay. But your credits from the Bible Institute were all Bible related and you didn't learn anything like about chemistry or history or art. So it wasn't a real school. It was just a bios. Wow. Talk about a bubble. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So, um, and I wasn't sure about what I wanted to do career-wise. And financially, my parents couldn't really like afford college. So it was a way, okay, you go to this Bible Institute thing. It doesn't cost that much money. And then you can go to a four-year college for free. So that is a good way to entice people to stay in that bubble. Do you remember what we talked about in the last episode with child indoctrination? Is that you can take away that motivation to get yourself out of the bubble. So you willingly, you and your parents willingly kept you inside that bubble because it was free. Yeah, I literally didn't apply to any other college. It was off to word of life. Bible Institute and then to Liberty University. I got there and of course was like, I think I'll be a youth ministry major. So I did that, you know, had to take ethics and worldview classes, which is more solidification of the indoctrination. It really, I think, made me more narrow-minded in my view of the world because I did see rebellious types, you know, at Liberty. I went to a few like house parties and I saw people drinking and fornicating and I was just like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Fornication? You saw fornication? I literally saw fornication at a party i can visualize it right now in my head because it was oh, wow. you know, so scarring but uh, <laughs> is that how you learned about sex no <laughs> you finally learned what sex was at liberty university well, yeah pretty much that and like you know i forgot to mention you know early like i had intense shame about sexuality and anything around that because again when you're brought up in that fundamentalist thing like sex is evil sex is only for marriage it's only for procreation if you have lustful thoughts you know you will burn in hell and see this is an example of how i had that but not to that extreme because i definitely it's definitely like purity culture i had that but nobody ever told me that lustful thoughts i mean i guess i knew that but nobody ever really said that to me you'll burn in hell if you have lustful thoughts that wasn't a thing that people said at my church yeah we had endured sermons about lust and you know all that kind of stuff and so eventually through college, I went through multiple majors because youth ministry, I didn't really, it wasn't resonating with me. I decided I wanted to be pre-med. So I went into biology and I was really bad at practicals. So then I switched majors again to clinical psychology in my senior year and I crammed the whole major into my senior year. Wow. I like psychology because I liked helping people. I always found myself in situations where I was listening to people's problems and it lined up well with my, my personality. But college for me was just a continuation of of the same. You know, I got more involved in you know, ministry per se. Although what's funny is I was like a bad kid in the dorm. You know, I was always getting in trouble with the RAs and doing that kind of stuff, you know. And then, of course, I would have to rededicate myself during spiritual. You're just so rebellious. Yeah, so rebellious, you know, which rebellion, you know, in the Christian dorm was like, you know, you listen to, you know, music that wasn't DC Talk or or Pray for Rain or you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, you have metal music playing? Yeah, I don't even know, like, those bands that you're saying. <laughs> right. I- yeah. That's how far out of that bubble I am. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, did you have any cracks? No, I don't remember a single part of college that where I was like, well, this is all horseshit. It was like more just solidification. Okay, so you're still in the solidification phase, whereas I was in the liquefaction phase. Yeah, you were like in 
full meltdown. I was like, <laughs> I was like rock, like rock solid, you know. I, I love these these science metaphors that we have going. They're fun. I was actually trying to think of a really hard type of rock, but I couldn't think of one. Moving on from college, how about your adulthood? You're on a progressive spectrum away, and I was on a progressive spectrum deeper and deeper. Yes. It's kind of all a blur. I would say that by the time I was in my 20s, I'd given up on true belief. I still wanted it, but it was just so hopeless to me. I didn't see how it could possibly come. And I I guess I kind of thought if I keep doing it, going through the motions, maybe one day something will happen. Mm. Like God will reveal himself to me or or I'll stumble across something that I never knew before that will give me that just a little, I just needed a little bit to go on, Right. right? To build a faith off of, but I didn't have that in one of the previous episodes, I talked about my husband and how I liked him because he didn't challenge my faith in any way. He didn't need me to grow that. Right. We didn't really connect religiously or spiritually. He also grew up with that strong, like, this is my duty. I need to go to church and that's just what you do. It's the right thing to do. And so we went to church every week. Right. He got confirmed as a Lutheran and we both did the new confirmand class again, mm-hmm. but it was for adults, not for the 13-year-olds. Okay. My parents were just so thrilled about that. Because he was Catholic, right? He grew up Catholic. He was Catholic, right? So my mom was like, yes, we got one. A convert. Yeah. Yes. And then my brother married a Catholic, so the net gain is zero. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. So you got married, had kids. Were you like, oh, we need to raise our kids in the nurture and admission of the Lord? Or were you just like, we're just going to do this because it's the thing to do? It's the thing to do. The thought of having kids, I guess I didn't really want to because... I thought, I'm not ready to do that. How am I supposed to teach them about God and everything if I don't have it figured out? I felt like I had to have it all figured out before I could bring another human into the world. Right. And I brought another human into the world without having it figured out. And not just one, but two. How irresponsible of you. I I felt so irresponsible (laughs) and I felt guilty about it all the time. It filled me with so much worry because I didn't know how I was going to raise them to have a belief that I didn't have. So, you know, my my parents, they raised me to have that belief that they had, but I didn't have that belief. So how was I going to do it? Right. So, yeah, we did take them to Sunday school eventually. And that was very uncomfortable for me because it felt like indoctrination, which it was. Right. Yeah. As an adult, did your relationship with your parents like stay the same? Yeah, they had no idea that I they thought I was a gung ho Christian and they didn't know anything different. I sometimes thought that they knew like there's a big difference between me and my sister. My sister is 100 percent head over heels in love with God. And I never exuded any of that. Oh, interesting. Like she just oozed it and I didn't. Yeah, yeah. But I think maybe they they put that down to our different personalities. Mm -hmm. And I think that they thought I did believe. Right. So I really fooled them, didn't I? Yeah, you did. You know, with that mindset of like, I raised my kids the right way, so they're going to do what they know is right. And I don't have to push it on them. Yeah, that, that's what she thought. Yeah, yeah that, that's what they thought. My family has zero drama. And when I say zero, I mean like negative drama. <laughs> There's no cursing. Nobody ever curses. Nobody ever yells. Nobody's ever gotten divorced. There's no illegitimate children. Nobody's ever dropped out of school or failed school. Right. Nobody's gotten arrested. There's no black sheep. I mean, literally, we are the most even-keeled family. And I love that about my family. I've always loved that about my family. And so I did not want to be the one to go down that path. I wanted to maintain that status quo. Yeah, didn't want to upset the apple cart. (laughs) Yeah. Also, there was a fear of hell in the back of my mind. Oh, shit, I got to get this figured out before I die. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Because what if I'm wrong? Like, yeah, it's all fun and games until you're burning in hell. Right. Um, how did things change for you once you got into your adulthood? So my like early adulthood, like post-college, it was like the first time I was really like out of the bubble the forced bubble. So then I kind of had to make the decision of like, okay, I need to find my own church. And of course, there was like kind of this pressure to get married and start a family. Because when you go to a Christian university, the goal for women is to get married. Mm -hmm. And the goal, you know, for men is to find a a wife. For women, like at Liberty, they used to always joke, you know, a ring by spring or or the women were here to get their MRS degree, you know, and yada, yada. Oh, that's so painful. It's just gross. You know, and this was also during the whole... I kiss dating goodbye thing. That was a big thing when I was yeah. when I was in college. So I didn't date through college because I couldn't pick up any chicks because I was a total doofus apparently. <laughs> anyway, so I get out of college and I'm like, okay, well, I gotta find a church and you know maybe I'll meet some person and get married. And so I landed at this church that was kind of taken over by a buddy of mine who I knew from college. Him and his wife were taking over this dying Wesleyan church and they needed people for the worship team. So I played drums and this was actually where I met my first wife and we were on the worship team together. Most of my adulthood was worship leading with her. She never wanted to have kids, which I knew at the very beginning, but I always wanted to have kids. And it was one of those things that I kind of thought would change eventually, and it never did. We were married for almost 10 years, and then one day she just left. No warning, was just like, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, like, Is it because of anything spiritual with her? Uh, I don't want to get too much into her story, but if you feel comfortable saying it. Was she deconstructing and she felt like she wasn't on the same plane as you anymore? Honestly, it probably was more about the idea of marriage and she was never really into the idea of marriage. I was always way more into our relationship than she was, even when we were dating and all that. When we got married, it was more like she relented because of my persistence and she was able to keep that up for almost 10 years. And then eventually she was like, yeah, I never actually wanted this. You know, that's not God's plan for women. You know, women are supposed to get married and have kids. So now I'm fascinated by her, but I know this isn't about her. Yeah. No, she never wanted to have kids. And I knew that kind of early on. We relocated at one point from Lynchburg, where we met, to the Shenandoah Valley for her to go to grad school. And she became a, an opera singer. And so that became her goal in life to become an opera singer. And I was just trying to support her in her dream, which I, I thought like I was the supportive husband and all that. But her whole experience was that she felt that she was being held back by being married. And so that was probably that was the main impetus for her leaving. Gotcha. So we wound up getting divorced. And it was right about that same time I got my own worship leading job because I had led worship with her for all these things where she was usually the leader and I was just in the band. So I got a job, a a part-time job as a worship leader in this church that had started this progressive kind of ancient future worship gathering that they wanted to start. And it was all because I don't know how familiar you are with like the emergent church phenomenon. Only from you. Yeah. So my pastor at this Baptist church, he went on this hiatus with his wife and they went to all these churches on the West Coast and all over where this ancient future emergent worship gatherings were happening, which were very experiential. They were very like kind of unstructured and liturgical, but also modern. So he comes back from this thing and he's like, we're going to do this here in Harrisonburg. They kind of tried to turn it into a program and they needed a worship leader for it. So I was like, I want to be the worship leader for it. Because again, subconsciously, that idea of like what the emergent church was doing was resonating 
resonating with what I thought Christianity should be. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be about those outside the walls. It was supposed to meet people where they were. It was supposed to be about meeting physical needs, not just saving people from hell. At the same time that it resonated with me, it clashed with what the church was trying to do because they wanted to make it a program as a way to get people in the doors. So they wanted the look of the emergent church and all the trappings of it, but they didn't want to actually let it develop organically. So I did my best with it what I was good, but I kept bucking with the pastor about this idea of this gathering is not about program, it's about people. Eventually I wound up leaving that, bounced around to some other churches, you know, trying to get worship leading jobs. So that problem you had with the emergent church, that was still a church infrastructure issue, not a God issue. Yes, yes, because it was really, I thought you guys have the view of God wrong. So you still weren't saying this, maybe this God character isn't real. No. Okay, interesting. So then- We're still not there yet. Yeah, I was still married at this point. She didn't want to worship lead, so she was doing her opera thing. And then a little bit after that was when we wound up getting divorced. And at the same time, I found this progressive Methodist community. Um, who kind of like walked with me through this divorce process. And this progressive church was like exactly what I thought church should be. It was about social justice. It met in a bar and I was like, oh my God, this is it. What did your parents think about this new church that you had, you were going to in a bar? Oh, well, they thought it was ridiculous. For one, it had a woman pastor, so it had to have been unbiblical. A couple of times they came down and they were there on the weekends and they came to the church and my mom, <laughs> my mom was very like rebellious, but she didn't have the like, because of the patriarchal system, she would never come out and say, oh, wow, that was actually a really good service. And I really liked the pastor's message because my dad would be like, oh, well, you know, but I looked over at them during like worship and my mom was like really into it. My dad's like, oh, what the, what the <laughs> hell is this? You know, and I was in the band and that whole thing. But so in at this church, I really got like the first taste of doing things for the community that wasn't about evangelism. I I did fundraisers. I did like put on events and stuff that we never mentioned God at. So I was like, this is what Christianity is supposed to be. The message of the church was God is love. You know, everyone means everyone. But, and it was less there, but I was having this problem of, I want to do more, but I'm being held back by like what this church is doing. And I was bucking up against the system, uh, even though the system was somewhat in line. And then having gone through the divorce and the church walked me through this, then meeting the person who I'm now married to, who had two kids. We wound up trying to go to that church together. She was grew up Presbyterian, but was kind of like your childhood. Church was a thing to do, but it wasn't like a passion. Her concern was, oh, okay, we're going to go to the church, but what's there for the kids? And since it was like a college type church, there wasn't any like kids program. So we kind of like just gradually stopped going there, not for any theological reason, but it was more because this church was like my church and it never became our church. Yeah. I kind of ran the gamut of like a lot of different denominations, Wesleyan, Baptist, Calvary Chapel, United Methodist. And I think a lot of that hopping was actually an indication of that unconscious search yes. in the faith system. But I didn't, again, didn't realize that it was the system that was causing the conflict. It wasn't the church or the people. It was during that church experience, they were very much about asking questions and the pastor said all the time, hey, God's big enough for you to pull at the bricks in your faith wall, so pull away. 
And so, so I started doing that. I started like, I started seeing things that like, they just didn't line up. I actually would say that church was the biggest part of my deconstruction because they encouraged me to pull at the bricks. That's so ironic. Yeah. Yeah. So I started pulling at those bricks and, you know, eventually it, it just fell down. Well, do you think if you had stayed in more of the fundamentalist church where they didn't encourage the questioning, would you still be in it? I wonder that. Probably because it was so foreign of an idea to question. If you questioned God or if you questioned the church, that was sinful and wrong. And there had to be something wrong with you if you were questioning. So the fact that this community was like, oh, you can question all you want and God's big enough for it. I really believe that. I was like, I'm going to ask these questions. I feel that God is going to give me the answers that I want to hear or that I need to hear, except I didn't get those answers. You thought it was going to lead you right back to God. You couldn't even imagine that it could have gone the other way. Yeah, no. And it wasn't even that I was falling away from God or anything. It was just like I was actually seeking to deepen the relationship by asking the questions. Do you remember what the questions were? I think a lot of them were, were around social justice ideas. Racism was like a thing. The role of women. LGBTQ. In this church, they were accepting of the LGBTQ community. And to me, that was so foreign because homosexuality was a sin in my entire life to that point. And yeah. I met so many people who were gay that were amazing people. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, how could that be? What you have been taught wasn't lining up with reality. Right. Okay, interesting. Yeah. It wasn't even a lot of theological things. It was more of just like an uneasiness of like, I can do all of this stuff that's good for the world without having to give God the credit for it. kind of skipped around there but like what are some of the progressions that like pushed you over the edge finally where oh. you were where you were like I'm going to stop trying because it seems like you were on the thing of like, I'm going to keep trying to do this. So how did I transition from trying to not trying? Yeah, yeah. This is fun. So if you think about it like a downward slope, maybe like a ball rolling down a hill, Yeah. you have to get to the bottom before you feel comfortable throwing in the towel and saying, all right, I'm going to see what this is all about. I'm going to face my doubts and ask my questions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there were a few things that happened along the way, and this took a long time. It started at age 30, probably, and lasted six years. What happened first is that I started studying cults, specifically Scientology. And I talked about this in a previous episode. Yeah. So I did a deep dive on that and I started to subconsciously or unconsciously realize how similar the tactics were from Scientology to mm. Christianity in general. In basically all religions. Mm -hmm. The line between obvious cult, man-made, and the one true religion started to get really blurry. Mm -hmm. I kind of knew at that point I should probably look into Christianity really critically I still wasn't brave enough to do it at that point, right. but reading about Scientology got me a lot closer. Okay, so then one Christmas, my mom gave me a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Obviously, she gave it to me to try to strengthen my faith. It did the exact opposite. Right. I think I read that book too. Did you really? Yeah. I actually think I have it around here somewhere. Okay. Yeah. It was, yeah, I think I did read that. Uh, yeah. So it was a really good book. I enjoyed it. I read it all in about a day and a half. Then I texted my mom. I was like, I love the book. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't tell her that it got me even closer down that, that hill. Yeah. So the reason that it did is because it's about a Muslim who he grew up Muslim, was very devout, and then over the course of years and years, deconstructed Islam and became Christian. Part of the book was him dissecting Islam and basically explaining 
explaining all the reasons why he came to believe it wasn't true. And I had never seen this process before where you go into the scriptures themselves, you take them apart, and you see why it doesn't work. And I loved that concept. It was fascinating to me. I'd never seen that before. Yeah, and he did it with the Quran instead of with the Bible. Yes. Yeah. Um, like I remember specifically, there was this one passage in the Quran where I guess Muhammad describes uh, like how a fetus is formed right in the womb, and apparently it's in the wrong order. Mm-hmm. So he's like, if you compare it to biology, it doesn't line up. So that was one of his indicators that this was not a holy inspired text. Right. And I was like, oh wow, that's so cool. Yeah. That like got me further down the hill of like we could do that with Christianity too, right? If he could do that. So the problem with the book is that he did it with Islam, but he didn't do it with the Bible. <laughs> mm. because he he was going under the presupposition that God was real. And so he was like, which religion is real instead of right. are any of them real? Right, right. Another event that happened that took me even closer down that hill was a horrible sermon at my church where the pastor disparaged working mothers for putting their kids in daycare. And at the same time said that one of the problems that we have in the world is that people are going to psychiatrists and mental health professionals instead of reading the Bible more and praying more. <laughs> right. You know, this might've been virtual church, but I, I remember looking at my husband and being like, the fuck, did you just hear that? And I don't even think he was paying attention. He's like, what would he say? He nodded off. After that... I was m- way more mentally checked out at that point, but I hadn't totally given up. This was not an event, but like you said, the just the general distaste for white Christian nationalism and mm-hmm. Trumpism, mm-hmm. that started to wear me down. The main event that got me going was a sermon series at my church called Tough Questions. The questions they were going to answer was, how do we know the Bible is real? How do we know Jesus is God? And types of questions like that. I think they even had one about evolution and creationism. I was so excited for this because I thought, these are my questions. Yeah, like, yes, finally, I'm going to get the answers. Yes, like, finally, someone's going to tell me the answers to these questions that I've been asking my whole life. I'm going to get the answers. And it was basically just word salad, circular reasoning of like, we know the Bible is true because it says it's true. And we know Jesus is God because he said he was. And, And I was like, are you kidding me? This is all this is all we got. And I thought if this is the best that you can do as my church and my pastor, I have to go out on my own here. I have to find these answers on my own. I got to see because if this is the best you got, there's a good chance it's not real. So I'm going to do that. Not too long after that, this was really good timing. I saw a post on the front page of Reddit and it was in the sub X Christian and it was asking people what their final straw was and why they left Christianity. And if I hadn't just gone through that sermon series on tough questions, I think I would have scrolled right past right, right. it and I would have buried it and said, no, don't go there. But I was primed for it and I was ready for it. And yeah. so I clicked it. And that was the beginning of the end. Because everything I read and everything that people said, I could have said it. Right. It was what was inside of me, but I didn't have the words for it. I was amazed that people had those same thoughts that I did. Right. My whole life, I felt like I was yeah. on an island and I wasn't. Uh, I didn't know anybody in my life who had left Christianity. I didn't even know anybody online mm. who had left Christianity. Like I zero. I didn't know anybody. Right. But here was a whole Reddit thread of people who had done it. And so that really got me on the path of questioning, researching, yeah. finding out what the truth was. The beginning of the end. Yes. But I still wanted to avoid that confirmation bias mm-hmm. and give Christianity a chance. I wanted to hear both sides. I didn't want to just jump into atheism. I, I wanted to be able to say I gave Christianity 
Christianity all that I had. So I was rereading all the apologetics. I've watched debates. But if you imagine like the scales, the justice scales, everything I read was just like atheism was getting heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And as time went on, I didn't see how anything could possibly tip the scales back the other way. Right. If there was anything that big, evidentially, to tip the scales, I should have seen it already. It should have been right. the first thing that people said. Like, oh, this writer from the you know year 30 wrote in the Roman archives right. that this happened and that you know there was this trial and there was this crucifixion and there right. was this earthquake. But yeah. there is nothing like that. It's kind of funny to me, like listen to your story and your timeline because like Trumpism and 2016, mine was around that same time too. And our journeys were so different, but our timelines are almost the same. My probably initial real deconstruction trigger was a friend of mine told me about the Born Again Again podcast. I had been conflicted about ideas about my faith. I hadn't been to church in a while. I didn't miss it. So she told me about this podcast. And once I started hearing Katie and Joe talk about their journey away from faith, every topic was like that Reddit post. Like, oh my God, I think that exact same thing. But I had never heard those words said. Some of the topics they covered, like Christianity as an abusive relationship, Christian parenting as an indoctrination, the parallels between the church and cults, the tools of manipulation and worship was a huge one for me because I was a worship leader for years and years. It was my whole identity. And I prided myself on being able to like work the room, but I never viewed it as manipulation. It was all the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. <laughs> but hearing them talk about how it's scientifically based, how to manipulate through music, I was like, oh, damn it. That's, That's what, I've been, what doing. I've been doing this whole time, you know, subconsciously again, knew it, but hearing it all laid out in like a systematic way, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I don't believe anymore. I don't believe any of that stuff. So what was the impetus for your friend sending the podcast to you? Did she know that you were struggling or doubting in some way? I don't remember. I was actually trying to scroll back through my Facebook chats to where she first sent it to me, but it was too long ago and I couldn't get back that far. We talked about stuff and I think she was going through her own deconstruction process and she had kind of come to the conclusion that she was an atheist. That's why she told me about the podcast. I didn't really think I was going to be all that interested in it because again, I wasn't consciously deconstructing. I had all this stuff going on in the background, but I had never put it into like a framework. So the podcast, it put it into a framework for me Wow! and said, oh, this is why you are feeling the way you are because this stuff just literally doesn't make sense. <laughs> like That's so interesting. This really highlights the importance of being able to be around other people who can put those concepts into words for you. Yeah. So many times our emotions are just these like blobs yeah. that are just swirling around inside of us and we can't put words to them. They're not tangible. We don't really understand them until somebody else can form the sentences yeah. that you can't. Yeah. And during this process, I had um, some friends from Lynchburg that I still maintain connection with. And so I went down to visit this buddy of mine and he was like, hey, I'm going to be at the church. So I, I get there. And while I'm like walking in, this homeless woman was outside. She comes up to me and says, hey, I'm trying to get some medication. Do you have five bucks? Because that's how much it costs. Like, you know, she was on like welfare or something like that. She told me this whole story, right? And now I've already got this like social justice thing that's been in my head and I'm at a church and I was like, oh, well, I don't have any cash, but I'm about to go in here and meet a bunch of people. I'm sure there's someone in here that could probably help you out. So I go in there, I find my buddy and I'm telling him this story. 
And so in the middle of telling the story, the pastor's kid, he butts into the conversation. He said, hey, what's going on? And I said, oh, there's this woman outside. She needs some money to go pick out some medication. She goes, does she look like this? And she's driving this color car. And I was like, yeah. He goes, oh, that lady is here every week trying to get money for this, that, and the other thing. You know, She's just going to use it to buy drugs. And I looked at him. And right then in that moment, I had this click of like, here's a room full of ministry people Nobody wanted to give this lady five bucks. And this guy had the like condescending attitude that it was his role to determine what she was going to do with the five bucks. I was pissed. And I looked at the kid. Yeah, I call him a kid. He was like 18 years old and I was like in my 30s. And I was like, dude, it's $5. Like, I'm pretty sure we could give the lady $5. It's not really our position to determine what this woman's going to what. Like, who cares if she goes and buy drugs? You're called to serve. It doesn't matter. You know, your intentions are good. It doesn't matter if she does the wrong thing with the $5, you know? And he was like, no. So I went, went back out to the lady and I told her, I was like, I'm sorry. Like nobody in here wants to help you. I'm sorry. I wish I had the money. So I just watched her drive away. And I I don't know if she really needed the, the money for medication or whatever, but it was in that moment. I was like, that's not what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. So that was a big part of it. And then the questions of like suffering that God allows all kinds of suffering in the world. And he was either powerless to stop it or choose not to. That was a big problem for me. He's like, she's going to bless certain people, but he's going to allow other people to suffer. I was really wrestling with the idea of God being a personal being yeah. He's going to intervene in some situations, but not in others. And still to this day, nothing pisses me off more to hear somebody thank God for a freaking parking space at Target or for finding their keys, mm-hmm. you know, or some shit like that. Oh, it angers me to no end because I'm like, oh, so you're going to tell me that God helped you find your keys, but an entire village got wiped out by genocide. God didn't see fit to help out there. You know, the his ways are higher than our, our ways explanation just started to sound feel real hollow. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think at the very end of this thing was my last living grandparent passed away. She was like 96 or 97 years old. She was a Christian. And I was like, basically consider myself not a Christian. And I went up to the funeral and I sat there like really numb during this thing. Cause like at no time during this funeral, did they mention anything about my grandmother's 96 years of life. The only thing they talked about is now she's in heaven and now she's not suffering anymore. And that fucking pissed me off. So it's like they stripped her of her human identity. They stripped her entire life meant nothing. The only thing that mattered was that she was a Christian and that she was in heaven. She could have discovered penicillin and it wouldn't have mattered. She could have cured cancer (laughs) and it wouldn't have freaking mattered as long as she was in heaven. And I sat there so numb. And that was like probably when I really knew I don't believe this crap anymore. You know, my dad is, you know, leading the service. Oh, that's awkward. And then the final straw after that was the January 6th insurrection, you know, where I saw people storming the Capitol with Bibles and crosses. Yeah. That was the end. That was really where I said, I can't believe in God anymore. There's no way God could even exist to allow something like this to happen and to have his personality and name be used to justify this action. Right. You could say, well, God has a higher plan. We don't understand. God allows suffering to preserve our free will, blah, blah, blah. But for God really to allow people to use the Bible and the cross for these horrible things, and not just this, but if you go back in history, things were much worse. And God just allowed that to happen. Yeah. Full-fledged genocide in the name of Jesus, like happened multiple times in history. (laughs) Like, Yeah. Yeah. his inaction is damning.
hope that people find our stories interesting because they're so different, but yet we both ended up in the same place, which I find ironic, you know, because like one of the tenets of Christianity is that, you know, there's only one way. Yeah, but there's 4,000 denominations or whatever. Yeah, 40,000 denominations. Yeah, 40. <laughs> there's no one way and there's no one way to deconstruction either. There's no way to like crystallize why people walk away from their faith, but you can't discount why people are walking away and that they are walking away. No. And I think people are trying to discount it. And we could talk about that maybe in a future episode. Yeah. The ending point for both of us, atheism is a very simple position. It is not a belief. It is a lack of belief or saying that you're not convinced about a claim. Right. That's the simplest you can get. Yeah. There are no 40,000 denominations of atheism. <laughs> right. So we rolled down uh, two different hills and we hit different bumps along yeah. the way and we started at different places, but we both got to the bottom yeah. and here we are. And it's funny because like the bottom feels like the top. Oh, yeah. You don't have all this weight and baggage and anxiety and stress and fear, no. like all that stuff that supposedly is not anything that you would experience as a Christian. We, we both experienced all those things. And now on the other side of Christianity, we have the freedom that supposedly we should have had as Christians, you know. I feel so free now. I'm finally living my authentic life and not pretending to be somebody yeah. else for somebody else or fitting into somebody else's box of dogma and expectation. Yeah. I've, I, I honestly feel like I've kind of met myself for the first time. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. All right. Well, we hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Our theme music is The Beauty of Authenticity by One Man Book. And follow us at flawedtheologypodcast.com and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please rate and review us. We need reviews. Yes. Review us on Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find us. We would greatly appreciate it. And we will talk to you next time. See you next time. Phil? And I'm Susie. Sorry. You are? <laughs> you were supposed to keep going. <laughs> Weren't you supposed to keep going? No, because you have to say you're Susie. No, but I can say that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I understand now. This is going to go in the outtakes for sure. <laughs> <laughs>